Hello dear listeners, you may have noticed that the two scientists crew have been a little bit quiet of late and that would be because we've been recovering from the National Taste of Science Festival that we're involved in. Now that that's all done and dusted, we can sit back and bask in the glory of how awesome it was. In the meanwhile, you get to enjoy not one but three podcasts this month and this is partly because of a little trip we took to DC a couple of months ago. You may vaguely remember an event called the March for Science, which took place not just in DC, but across the world. Well, given that two scientists strongly believe in the importance of evidence-based decision-making and science outreach, we thought it right not only to join the movement, but to take part in the march itself. And while we were there, we were lucky enough to have a collaborative event with Taste of Science in Washington, DC, and the wonderful Carnegie Institution for Science. So, this particular podcast takes place with three different speakers who gave us their impressions of the march, why they think science is important, and how we can go about making it more accessible so that everyone has the tools to understand the scientific research that's being carried out every day. So, part one of our podcast begins with an introduction to the Carnegie itself, and that comes to you courtesy of Dion Rossiter, and that's followed up by our first speaker, Paul Miller, also known as DJ Spooky. And in this three-part series, he is the artist. We hope you enjoy. Dion Rossiter, and I actually work at the Carnegie Institution for Science. This is our website and our handle, so feel free to tweet or go and follow us on Facebook. Uh, I am the Scientific Programs and Outreach Manager, which means that I get to do really fun things like hosting events like this. I'm not hosting this one, Taste of Sciences and the March for Sciences, which we're really excited to have them in the building. Um, We became an official partner and sponsor of the March for Science, so it's really, yeah, it's really exciting. for us to, thank you. And one of the things we wanted to do was just have people in our in our building and have the partners in our space because this really is a beautiful, beautiful building as you've seen. Um, and we're always looking for partners to run different sorts of events and have different partnerships. We have about 500 people who work for Carnegie across the country. And these are scientists that span, as you saw in the video, um, from space, earth, and life. We have developmental biologists, we have earth and planetary scientists, we have astronomers, uh, we have plant biologists working for us, we have global ecologists, Uh, we have uh, the observatories in Chile. So we have, we're doing a lot of space science down there. We're building the giant Magellan telescope as we speak. So we have a lot of really new things happening. Um, we also, if I'm assuming who has never been in this building before, raise your hand. Whoa, that's crazy, you guys. We have a lecture once a month um, and we fill the house every month and there are always these really amazing science lectures Um, And they're free, they're open to the public, they span all science. Um, They're not our scientists, they're scientists from across the world, actually. We had Pierre Cox from Chile here um, earlier this year. 
please, to learn more about what's happening in the building, um, sign up for our listserv and take our brochures and come back. Uh, our lecture and this, our lectures are amazing and all of our programs are great. Um, we have one of our scientists on the panel, so we're really excited to, to bring our science to the stage today as well. So thank you so much for being here. Talk to me if you want to learn more about all the different and cool things we're doing at Carnegie Science. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Dee, so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm very jealous that I don't live in D.C. and won't be able to partake as often as I'd like. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Palm Bahia, and we host a regular um, Two Scientists podcast, which is usually us with a scientist. Um, today, we're super excited to be here and also collaborating with the March for um, what has been a phenomenal weekend. Uh, our first guest actually does not happen to be a scientist at all. He is an artist. His name is uh, Paul Miller, aka DJ Spooky. How are you doing, Paul? I'm good. It's a beautiful day. Yes, I know. Pity it couldn't turn out for us yesterday. Um, so as somebody who's not a scientist at all, what does the march mean to you? Um, well, there's a couple of variables at work here um, in that everyone is affected by science. And I think that um, in the role of an artist and in the role of a composer, uh, amusingly enough, I grew up a couple blocks from here over at Connecticut and R. If you ever had teaism, um, my family had the building there and uh, my mom had a store called Toast and Strawberries. So um, I grew up, oh, yeah, there you go. So, so um, growing up in Washington, D.C. in this, or the ancient 70s, 80s, you know, um, um, there was a sense in the air of deep structural possibility. And mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid, one of my earliest memories is when um, Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House. And um, one of Reagan's first acts when he got in office to, was to take the solar panels off. Um, so I asked my mom, I was like, why is he taking solar panels off? They look really cool, you know? So, mm -hmm. But to make a long story short, when you say science, it's incredibly important to think about the conversation between the arts and sciences, not as silos. Um, and I think that the world is a better place if we have more robust discussion between those mediums. Absolutely, I completely agree. And uh, I understand that you were kind of uh, integrally involved with the events here yesterday. So can you tell us a little bit more about those? Well, let's factor in, um, first, um, Ayana and Valerie, if they're here, we, I'd love to, can we just give them Hi. a huge hand? They, um, for, from the perspective of, again, being an artist, I was not a structurally uh, part of that main thing, but I'm a huge mega fan. So um, when the conversation came up to do or participate or figure out what would work, um, some friends of mine happen to have an amazing space underneath DuPont Circle. If you haven't been, there's an abandoned subway a couple blocks from here. So we thought it would be kind of fun to have dialogues between scientists and artists. And um, my role in that was kind of like a, a catalyst. Let's put it that way, kind of um, give people a sense of engagement and then open the space up. It's a 75,000 square foot space. If you ever have a moment, they're turning into a contemporary art space now. Oh, wow. And it's just a couple blocks over. And it's much cooler under the ground in D.C. during the summer, just saying. Uh, the D.C. summers are brutal, I'm sure. <laughs> I live in Tampa, so, um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so how was your, uh, your event last night, and how did you feel about it? Um, well, the, from, there's a couple things that were happening uh, that made it, I think, just really heartwarming. It was about people. And there was a good group of people between mediums and genres and people who are specialists in different um, approaches to science and the arts. So the conversation went from deep time. Uh, we had a Karen Holmberg who studies volcanology. 
uh, on over to one artist who just made an app that traces the water line of how how high the water is going to be once the uh, various ice sheets melt. He has a, it's an app called After Ice. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, one of the inspirations for me, at least, was that my own work as a composer. Um, can we show the screen uh, from the iPad? I'm just going to show one quick thing as a part of a two part response to what you're saying. All right, can you? All right. Um, so for me, at least, um, coming out of the arts, I'm an artist in residence at Stanford, and I tend to also publish books with MIT. I'll just show you that really quickly. And this is on purpose, by the way. I, I very much am sick of PowerPoint, so I usually try and do what I call nonlinear. Um, so my most recent book with MIT, uh, I work with a really renowned mathematician, uh, Stephen Wolfram, uh, who does Wolfram Alpha and Wolfram Mathematica. Um, so the idea was I wanted to present the book uh, about apps and the way apps had changed the creative process. So um, part of the conversation last night was talking about digital media overall and the, the tools for enabling a better conversation between scientists and artists. Very nice. So you go further than just these, um, these kinds of activities with people. You also hold um, or you're responsible for a nonprofit called I'm going to massacre the name now. Uh, Vanuata Pacifica. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, Vanuatu, for those who don't know, it's a it's a group of islands in the middle of the South Pacific. And I had heard about it because the Economist magazine did a series of essays about the the quantification of happiness. And um, in our modern era, happiness is one of the most elusive things. I'm sure we all woke up very unhappy, perhaps if you're involved with science after the election, for example. <laughs> Um, and the eerie thing about Vanuatu is that many scientists have studied it uh, as one of the happiest places on Earth. So um, I'd gone out there, I'd read these group of articles, and then went out there. This is my old office, by the way. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and um, that's uh, my team. And basically, we were uh, doing a series of like setting up a contemporary art space on this remote group of islands. Um, regretfully, that whole space was destroyed in, me in a mega storm. Uh, and uh, so that was my first taste as an artist doing an independent art project. Uh, the motto of a producer is never pay for your own projects. <laughs> um, so uh, that megastorm came in and swept away uh, the whole place. But I have fond memories of working there. So you can, you can actually still get work done in the tropics. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Vanuatu Pacifica Foundation was an initiative that I set up um, as artists and scientists in dialogue, and it was about remoteness. So you'd fly several, I mean, 20 some odd hours to the middle of the South Pacific to this beautiful group of islands. And the idea was to encourage remoteness as a, as a kind of a thought process. Um, I tended to find in New York, uh, and I'm now artist in residence at Stanford, people tend to be overwhelmed with too much distraction. And um, in fact, there's a new science of distraction. Many people are trying to figure out the cognitive processes of that. But um, going to remote places actually tends to be a kind of a poetic experience. So the, the Vanuatu project came out of another initiative, and I'll just show you this really quickly, um, where I went to Antarctica. This is about as most um, opposite as you can possibly imagine to the South Pacific. But um, I did what I call a group of acoustic portraits of ice. And the idea was to think of ice as a, um, a narrative tool and thinking about it as deep time as well. So what you're seeing here is a huge glacier field that's actually sinking, and it looks like a nuclear bomb has gone off, actually. It's really stunningly uh, profound to go to a place like this and see sort of geologic time, and then think about how to transform that into a composition. 
So one question from me, um, a lot of the people here are scientists, they're either involved directly with it or they're involved in outreach and I think one of the conversations we're trying to have now is how do we engage with each other and with the public in order to inform them about our work. You're saying that um, obviously art and science as an initiative is also important, so how would you recommend that other artists go about speaking to scientists in order to portray their work? You know, that's a great question, Pamvir. Um, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, Pamvir. Okay. You are. So, to me at least, the problem of the 20th century and the legacy in the 21st is the silos. You know, people became hyper specialized in the 20th century, um, whether you're a composer, whether you're a mathematician, um, whether you're an artist. Whereas in the 19th century, many people thought about the idea of natural sciences or the natural philosophies. And there were many, many found fundamental discoveries made by hobbyists, you know, mm -hmm. people who are just quirky, eccentric people who, would, who had studied to a degree, but they weren't super specialized. So I'll give you an example of one of my favorite, and this is a big inspiration for several of my projects, actually, which is, um, by the way, this is all on purpose, so you're, you're getting a little tour through the hard drive here. Um, <laughs> And one of my favorite uh, ways to think about this is a good conversation of what, um, you know, Socrates and Plato would literally just call this sort of dialectical process. Um, so one of uh, my, the, my biggest inspirations for that is a conversation that um, one could argue leads to down many paths, and that is between um, Einstein and one of my favorite um, Indian poets, Rabindranath Tagore. Um, in the 1930s, they had a conversation because Einstein had a um, kind of a mental writer's block, and he called up uh, Rabindranath Tagore, and they recorded a conversation. And this is just to show you a good photo here. Um, yeah, these, here's these two gentlemen. And in 1930, Einstein uh, was trying to figure out sort of the general theory of relativity and, and unfolding and unpacking some of the issues of that general theory. And Rabindranath Tagore was the first Indian to win the Nobel Prize for poetry. Uh, and much of his poetry is based on sort of Sanskrit, traditional forms of, um, and amusingly enough, um, there's a deep structural math implicit in Sanskrit. So Einstein and him had this great conversation. They recorded it and made a book called On the Nature of Reality. So the sciences and poetics in conversation, and these two major thinkers. Um, so I use that as an example, uh, as an inspiration for a group of compositions. Um, so I went to India, we were talking about that a little while mm -hmm. ago. Um, and one of my more recent projects was with National Geographic, and I went to several of the main rivers of India. This is some photography I was doing. Um, and the eerie thing about appropriation and taking bits and pieces, which is what I do as a musician, and I'm going to show you that in a second, is to think about collage. And the collage you're seeing here, and just I'll point out, you see the brown line there, that's where the water should be. Um, and the, this, the river is sinking, so this might be a beautiful picture, but it's an image of devastation. Um, and the Ganges River is being heavily affected, or Ganga, as they say in India, is being heavily affected by um, the glaciers retreat uh, at the base of the Himalayan mountains. So the water levels, and it's actually quite a traditional thing to do, to put bodies in the river and then light them on fire. Um, so I was in, in India um, kind of going through, and it's kind of funny, many Indians actually think I'm Indian, it's very charming. Uh, <laughs> they would come up to me and start speaking in Hindi, um, and I... I was like, no, New York, you know, sorry. Um, but the idea of a good conversation between cultures and between mediums is so important. But I think in the 21st century, we're in this era of, of a kaleidoscopic sense of uh, being pulled in many directions simultaneously. And the funny thing is, uh, people who are against, quote unquote, against science or don't believe uh, in facts and you know, things like that, 
um, they're basing it on an emotional logic, you know. So how do you reach that demographic? How do you try and think about it? I think the arts is, about, is the hidden tool in the arsenal, so to speak, to, to do that. Yeah, I, it sounds like a wonderful means to reach out to people who, for whom the, speaking to them about science directly is not always the most accessible way to, to try and broach these kinds of subjects. So, as a matter of fact, if I can show you a quick example, because um, this is something that's dear to my heart. Um, and when I was in Antarctica doing photography and doing this idea of compositions, um, I was inspired by the essays written by um, this gentleman, Johannes Kepler. And amusingly enough, um, in 1611, he was on his way home, and a snowflake landed on his sleeve. And I use this as a fun example. Uh, basically, he went home and wrote an essay called Six Sides of a Snowflake. And generally, this is considered to be one of the first major essays about mathematics describing geometry and ice. Um, and the beautiful thing about this essay was that it has a very pure sense of engaging with a geometric form. So, say for example, when you see a piece of ice, you're actually looking at this hexagonal shape, which to me is visually stunningly beautiful, but there's a very discreet and clear mathematics describing it. And once you get those um, uh, equations set, you can easily see the permutation. Um, and this is unfolding in nature. And it's one of the most beautiful things you can you know, kind of think about. Um, but it's all permutations of the same thing. And so what I did with ICE was uh, we plugged uh, the Johannes Kepler's equations into the software called Max MSP. Um, and I used that to generate um, algorithmic response. So this is becoming more and more visual ICE um, based on the equations from Kepler and then turning that slowly into, and I'll just show you, this is, becomes pure visual ice. But it's the same thing uh, with the temperature differentials we gathered when I was in Antarctica. Um, and the idea was to take that data and work with a group of scientists, uh, and I work with Dartmouth's Cold Regions Research Labs. Uh, the guy, the gentleman who's the director there, his name's Ross Virginia, he's one of the world's leading specialists in temperature differentials uh, in the Arctic regions. So I took his data from that and combined it with some, this is what you call uh, algorithmic musical transcription. So you, how do you talk to people in the real world who are just waking up and want to have coffee in the morning and, and do, go their thing? But amusingly enough, um, I could show you all the technical details of this, but I want to just play you a quick clip of what this sounds like. So I, I commissioned a singer um, to sing the geometry of ice. And I'll just, this is a software I developed uh, that lets you DJ from your iPad or your phone. And we've had over 15 million downloads of it. It's called DJ Mixer. Um, and the funny thing about this, what you're going to hear is I'm going to do a quick permutation because I know we're in a tight time mm -hmm. frame. I have to go to the airport, actually. So, so what you're hearing is the same thing you were just hearing earlier. And this is a permutation of the same. And... So you're hearing the same thing, and it's just small fragments that actually can be looped and layered and remixed and edited. But there's both uh, a, a kind of improvisational quality to that, but it's actually very specifically algorithmic. Um, so what I'm trying to do over the course of doing uh, this kind of music meets data meets art uh, initiatives is get people to start thinking about how we can make a better conversation. Um, and that, I think, goes to the heart of your question. Yeah, I think actually that's the perfect way for us to say thank you so much for right. sharing your work with us and let you escape for the airport. Yeah, I know. I have a flight in about <laughs> 40 minutes. So. Okay. <laughs>
you've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to join us for part two tomorrow.